Better it's next. See you tomorrow night. <laughs> On the program tonight, Hamas blinks or winks? Why the slow release of hostages plays right into Iran's hand. We'll show you why this means Hamas may get away with this. It's joy for their families and makes it more likely they will get away with medieval torture. I saw uh, beheaded bodies. I saw body parts. As the world rallies around terror, it all makes World War III more likely. A ceasefire for the state of Israel? I can't say this more explicitly. A ceasefire is death. Bill O'Reilly breaks down the war at home ahead. Mask up, hands up. Washington, D.C. thinks they can cut down on their exploding crime wave with stiffer penalties for armed robbers who wear masks. What the The other stunningly brave proposals to take a bite out of crime. It's the economy, and Americans aren't stupid. For the first time in a long time, we're investing in America. Why President Biden keeps doubling down on Bidenomics while new polling shows Americans aren't buying it. And in defense of mom and dad, new studies show two-parent homes are better for kids. Is it a shock that only 30% of liberals agree? All right, welcome to the Ferris Show on television. First tonight, Hamas and Iran might actually get away with it, get away with their horrific attack in Israel. And that makes World War III all the more likely, not less likely. Late tonight in the Middle East, Hamas released two elderly hostages. Hamas kidnapped them from near Oz. That's the kibbutz they were on. A hundred other Jews are dead or still remain as hostages just from that kibbutz. Hamas dangled releasing 50 hostages earlier today, including all the dual citizens, but that fell apart when they demanded fuel shipments into Gaza. As we told you shortly after the conflict started, Hamas would do everything possible to delay the ground invasion. The press would help, as they are right now, helping Hamas by talks of quote-unquote Israeli war crimes. And as we predicted, President Biden's team continues to pressure Israel not to wipe out Hamas with a ground invasion. An excellent Washington Post story lays out the president's plan. In the days after the Hamas invasion, the president and his top diplomatic and military observers balanced uncompromising support for Israel, in their words, with concerns about Gazan civilians and the worst case scenario of a wider Mideast conflict. That wider Mideast conflict can, of course, turn very quickly into World War III, which is all the more reason, all the more reason, for violence of action by the Israelis. The Israelis are understandably a little scared, and with good reason. So let's talk about the state of play right now in the Middle East. Over the weekend, the world's three nuclear superpowers converged on the Middle East. This is the whole ballgame right now, and we start with China. They put six destroyers, uh, including a guided missile destroyer, into the Persian Gulf. That, of course, helps them with Iran. The guided missile destroyer arrived in Kuwait. They've been operating in the Middle East for just about now the past week. Why on earth would the Chinese be in the Middle East? 
Well, they are very, very interested in being able to keep the United States Navy and our Air Force and the rest of our military occupied. They were the ones who went ahead and brokered the Iran-Saudi Arabia deal. The Chinese love nothing more than forcing the United States and its Navy away from China, hence their ships here. Now let's just show you how many U.S. assets are right now uh, in the Middle East. You have the USS Mount Whitney uh, there in the Mediterranean, also the Gerald R. Ford Aircraft Carrier Carrier Battle Group, uh, the, the largest naval force in terms of firepower that can be sent anywhere in the world. Not only is the uh, Ford there uh, in the Mediterranean, you now have the Eisenhower steaming in towards the Persian Gulf. The Persian Gulf with the Strait of Hormuz right here is about to get very, very busy and very, very dangerous. Down south here, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, uh, the USS Kearney, they, that was the destroyer that intercepted the uh, missiles going from Yemen uh, towards Israel. Now, in terms of fixed bases that the Iranians can look at, there is the Fifth Fleet headquarters in Bahrain. There is the UAE right now, which has roughly 3,500 U.S. troops. Then we're going to go to Qatar, tiny, tiny little area, Al Ayyadid Air Base, 8,000 U.S. troops. If Qatar sounds familiar, that's because where that's where Hamas's leadership uh, hangs out as well. 2,500 U.S. troops, and we often forget about this. 2,500 troops inside of Syria, 900 uh, on this graphic there, and then 2,500 inside of Iraq. Then we also mentioned Kuwait, of course. That was where the main U.S. bases are. 13,000 U.S. troops, U.S. Army Central Command forward headquarters. So this is the U.S. assets all inside the Middle East, all within range for Iran. And then you have Russia, who doesn't want to be left out of the game. They're flying combat air patrols over the Black Sea with MiG-31s, equipped with what's called their dagger missiles. Uh, that's a nuclear-capable hypersonic missile that can reach uh, the USS Gerald Ford in the Mediterranean. With that in mind, Admiral Lord West, formerly of the British Navy, laid out six steps to, in his world's World War III. Uh, and we know how the Brits view Israel. Uh, he says Israel is going to overreact and throw forces into Gaza. Uh, that would cause massive casualties among Hamas. Uh, which maybe perhaps Hezbollah gets involved from the north. That would be the Iranians' sort of uh, ideal scenario here in his mind. Assad and Putin team up because you have Syria, which relies on Hezbollah. Then Iran gets involved formally. There's ways to prevent this. So far, the United States is not. The U.S. and U.K. would enter the fight if Israel got in real trouble, maybe, uh, and then Saudi Arabia would be forced in, which is something the Iranians would absolutely love. This is his six steps that he goes through. The Biden administration fears this in the same way Hamas lured Israel into a sense of complacency before the attack. Iran did exactly the same thing in a much grander scale to the United States. We aren't ready, clearly, for a regional conflict in the United States. Thus, the Biden administration's pressure on Israel to stand down, or at least wait, and we keep hearing that, wait, wait, wait. Here's Secretary of Defense Austin and President Biden. What we're seeing is, a, is the prospect of a significant escalation of attacks uh, on our troops and uh, our, our people throughout the region. History has taught us that when terrorists don't pay a price for their terror, when dictators don't pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos and death 
and more destruction. They keep going. And that's the problem for the administration. They want it both ways. They want Israel to wait and not provoke a larger conflict. But at the same time, they acknowledge someone must punch the bully in the nose or the bully will keep bullying. And the bully here is not Hamas. The bully is Iran. The U.S. is rushing air defense systems right now to protect our bases from Iranian missiles, also to protect Israel. Let's take a quick tour here of what we are up against in terms of Iran. Iran, 600,000 troops, 3,000 missiles. Then we go to their proxies, the Houthis down here, 200,000 troops in Yemen. This is a full army here. It also is just a few miles uh, across the strait here at the very bottom here that controls access to the Suez Canal. The Houthis can stop that with their anti-ship missiles. Hezbollah uh, up here in Lebanon, the largest non-state actor, 50,000 fighters, 150,000 missiles. It's unbelievable. Palestinian Islamic Jihad, 1,000 fighters, 5,000 rockets. These are the sort of most hardened forces uh, inside of Gaza. Obviously, you have Hamas, 30,000 fighters, 30,000 rockets. Islamic Jihad is where most of the suicide bombers come from. You then have Syria, uh, where they have about 170,000 troops, certainly a lot of combat power that could hurt the Israelis. Uh, and then they have aircraft and missiles as well. Uh, the key for international trade would be the Houthis in Yemen. The longer this goes on, the longer it goes on. Iran wants to end American dominance of the Middle East and with our allies and embarrass America, the videos like this are already doing this. Iran's gonna continue pushing. We've seen that with attacks on US bases by Iran. We know Iran continues to support Hamas and Hezbollah. And we know that Iran is closely monitoring these events and in some cases actively facilitating these attacks Yet we refuse to punch back, and we are literally holding Israel back. Hamas is playing the White House and playing for time, so public opinion is shifting. Thus, Hamas is on the verge of getting away with the worst slaughter of Jews since the Holocaust. This is a new video from the IDF today. Iran will have stared down the United States and Israel. Remember, the Iranians did this when Hezbollah bombed the Beirut Marine barracks, killing 200-plus Americans. Iran never paid a price. And somehow the administration wants us to be happy about getting out of World War III, except history tells us that what President Biden said is true. When terrorists don't pay a price for their terror, when dictators don't pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos and death and more destruction. They keep going. The tough talk is good till you realize we aren't extracting a price from the Iranians and we are holding the Israelis back. Weakness is provocative. It's provocative to China, to Iran, to North Korea, and to Russia. So let's watch this play out. Hamas very well might get away with it. Iran might well become the regional power in the Middle East, and World War III will only be more likely. Jason Greenblatt is here, former White House envoy to the Middle East under the Trump administration. He knows the Middle East better than just about anybody. Is there any other explanation for what's going on than the one we've laid out? No, actually, you did an excellent job. I wish cable news would do the kind of job that you did to really lay out the danger, the threat to America, 
and the danger and the threat to all of our allies, obviously Israel after those atrocities, but all of our allies are in danger. And I gave President Biden a lot of credit for how he handled the crisis until now. I give him a lot of credit for the messaging and going to Israel. But now is the time to punch the bully back, as you say. If we don't, not only will Israel have a significant threat on their lap, but all of our allies, and it will come back to America, and it will go into Europe. If we hold Israel back now, hmm. all bets are off. Look, reasonable people can disagree about the Biden administration's pivot away from the Middle East. I think people who knew the Middle East kind of predicted this rise in Iran and the reproachment of Iran uh, would probably have this, in, in retrospect, the same result that uh, Israel's underestimating Hamas did. Is there any explanation, though, for why the United States keeps talking tough? And we've heard that from Blinken. We've heard it from Biden. We've heard it from Secretary Austin. But they keep attack. Iran keeps attacking U.S. assets and U.S. bases inside the Middle East through their proxies. And yet the administration almost seems scared of Iran rather than aggressive towards it. Part of the issue is politics, right? President Biden has been strong, but he's getting a lot of flack from the very left. He can't run this country and our safety with politics. The second issue is we probably are not as fully prepared as we need to be when it comes to Iran. I think yeah. we're ramping up quickly. I think this took everybody by surprise. So it could be that he's asking Israel to give him a little bit of time to make sure we're there, there, that we are there, ready to fight for Israel, ready to fight for America, and ready to fight for our other allies and friends. But we better act. One really of the fight. reasons, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on because your experience in the Middle East, and you know, you're known for your relationships with Israel. But part of the Abraham Accords, right, was was negotiating with with other Arab countries that that were very distrustful. Um, of Israel and, and normalizing relations. It was remarkable what happened in the change during the Trump administration in the Middle East. I covered it from 2010 to 2014. The things that happened were unthinkable uh, in a good way. Um, as you look at what, what are you hearing both from inside Israel and from the rest of the Arab world about how they view the United States vis-a-vis Iran? Is Iran now gaining, for lack of a better term, street cred in the Middle East? I think what they're very concerned about is the Biden administration's unwillingness to acknowledge completely and unequivocally Iran's hands in this atrocity that Hamas perpetrated. They want, they understand that Hamas and Hezbollah, obviously the Houthis, they're all not just after Israel, they're after every one of those countries. And they need a sign of strength from President Biden. They need to understand that America has everybody's back there against Iran, and they're not seeing it right now. You dealt with the Egyptians and the Jordanians. Um, what have you heard from behind the scenes about them snubbing President Biden? I think about the Emiratis, the Qataris, where we have bases and the like, the Kuwaitis. Um, are, are they wondering uh, and hedging their bets a little bit, maybe, about U.S. leadership in the Middle East? I don't have any back uh, inside story, right? But I am shocked that they would snub the president of the United yeah. States, the president of the most powerful country in the world who gives so much money to these countries. I think they're great countries, but I think that was a big mistake. Wow. Hey, we really appreciate you coming on. We've been looking forward to chatting with you for a while. Um, we're going to have you back. Thank you. And, and as somebody who uh, is a promoter of peace in the world, thanks for all you did for the Middle East and for our, our country. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Video of recent armed robberies around the country and in Washington, D.C. show most show almost all of the robbers, as you look through all of this video, they're all terrified of COVID, evidently. 
because they're all wearing masks. D.C.'s mayor announced a new tough-on-crime policy today, including enforcement of an old law making it illegal to wear a mask while committing a crime. As if the law against wearing a mask will keep people from committing crimes they are already committing. Here's the mayor. We've all seen the videos. In fact, there was one from the wharf last Monday where everyone who jumped out of a car with a gun pointed at an innocent person had on a ski mask. And we need to address that. These changes, of course, won't apply to people who are wearing masks for their health. And D.C. needs some help, not in the health category, but in the crime category. Past year, all crime up 27 percent. Violent crime, 41 percent. Homicides up 34 percent. Robbery, 70 percent. Motor vehicle theft up 102 percent. Also on the proposal to allow police to create drug-free zones, which isn't sort of that's the police's job no matter what, uh, and to allow officers to use body cameras to write reports. The mayor also wants to outlaw organized retail theft rings. Chief Ralph Godby, former Detroit police chief who spent 25 years on the force, is with us now. Chief, really, I, I, I'd almost laugh if it wasn't so serious. This is ridiculous. Leland, I am completely underwhelmed. The big <laughs> You're generous, too. You may be a diplomat. <laughs> next well, send you to the Middle uh, East, if that's how you describe it. I mean, Leland, you know, whoever's advising Mayor Bowser... Uh, they need their check docked because when you talk about the levels of increase in crime, violent crime in Washington, D.C., and the big announcement is that you're now going to outlaw the mask again. Now, don't get me wrong. There's some value to it uh, from an enhanced sentencing standpoint. But if that's the, the linchpin of the crime reduction strategy, uh, D.C.'s in a lot of trouble. Yeah, I, I live here um, in D.C. Uh, by, by requirement, not by choice. But it, it's getting terrifying to the point that even the Senate put out uh, guidelines for its staffers to avoid carjackings. Um, and what I'm wondering is when you when you listen to the mayor uh, who has her own security detail and everything else, when you heard that soundbite, does she understand the problem? Uh, I don't think so. And, you know, and I have to be completely honest, uh, I think we do a great disservice when we ask mayors uh, that have never served in law enforcement uh, to really explain uh, the crime problem. Uh, That's the chief. The chief uh, has to have his or her hands on the steering wheel, and they have to be able to articulate a vision for reducing crime. There are strategies, and sometimes we overcomplicate it, Leland, uh, and any basic crime triangle, there are three aspects you look at. You look at the perpetrator environment. You look at the actual um, uh, area that the crime has taken place. And then you have to look at the victim population. And when one of those three, you have to put some levers on and have a strategy. But uh, outlawing a ski mask at this point, uh, that's putting, you know, the proverbial uh, Band-Aid on a gunshot wound. And I don't mean to uh, say literally, that. Literally. But- but literally. literally, no, I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. It, it, literally, yeah. literally, like it's putting a bandaid on a guy's wound. Hey, Chief, um, we got to run, but thank you very much. We appreciate it. And uh, your diplomacy skills are well noted for any future segments. <laughs> uh, coming up next, President Biden tries running on Bidenomics. Maybe he should run away from Bidenomics. Why everything from the cost of homes to gas seems to be working against the president, despite what he says. And love, marriage go together. 
Like good degrees and a good job for kids. The new research showing that two-parent households make kids healthy, wealthy, and wise. So why are two-parent homes shunned? Press has uh, started to call my plan Bidenomics. <laughs> well, under Bidenomics, you don't have to leave home or your family to get a good job. For too long, science and innovation and economic opportunities that came with it were concentrated on the coast. I can honestly say I've never been more optimistic about America's future. You don't have to leave home to have a good job. Sounds pretty good. That's President Biden today. Perhaps the president's advisors haven't shown him the latest polling on Bidenomics. Aggregate of surveys from Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, otherwise known as swing states. 26% like Biden economics, 49% dislike them. And it's worst among black and Hispanics from the Wall Street Journal's piece, Why Bidenomics Isn't Popular. After adjusting for inflation, the typical white family's income rose 1.3%. Black and Hispanic families got hit, declines of 1.6% and 1.1%. Wages for minorities didn't keep up with inflation. Those for whites barely did. Mitch Rochelle is here, visiting research fellow at the University of San Diego School of Business, founding partner of Macro Trends Advisors. To be fair, if Bidenomics worked in the way the White House said it worked, then people would like it. Right. If people were making more money, they'd like it. If gas prices were lower, they'd probably like it. The problem with inflation is it's cumulative, and no one really focuses on that in the West Wing. So they'll talk about the rate of inflation. The annual rate of inflation is up three point something percent, which sounds good. But you forget about it since inflation reared its ugly head almost two and a half, three years ago. All of that inflation is cumulative. The price of eggs don't miraculously go down. And that's what's really hurting people. And wages don't keep up with that increase in costs. People feel the, the effect. You know, in hindsight, we always look back and go, oh, we should have noticed that, that thing. They did that about the 2008 housing crisis. I'm sure people are going to go back and see things that Hamas did and that Iran did. And we'll go, well, it's obvious they were going to attack because they did all of these things. Um, I'm almost looking at this car payments uh Note is that Americans overdue on car payments its highest level in 30 years since 1994. The level people behind 60 days or more rose 6.1 points in September. It sounds like kind of a meaningless data point and sort of very in the weeds. But I'm wondering if this isn't going to be that thing that six months from now we go, hey, we should have looked at this and realized that's what's happening. And home defaults are uh, highest level that they've been in terms of month over month increase. You know what the average car payment is in America? $750. $750 for a car payment. I remember when you open up the newspaper and see an advertisement for a car and it had a three in front of it. Now it's twice that. So again, if your income didn't go up, you know, twofold, then that car payment is out of reach. And more importantly, you know what's also out of reach? The pickup truck payment. And the pickup truck is the standard unit of operation for a small business in America. So everybody's forgetting about the fact that small businesses are also paying the price, which means they won't be hiring. This probably won't surprise you since we're in Washington, D.C. There is a uh, Twitter account that follows the stock trades of major members of Congress. And there are now dozens of members of Congress of course, they don't have any inside information uh, who are liquidating their stock portfolios and putting it in cash. So not, says, not a surprise. Not, not a surprise. Are they buying gold, though? That's what I want to know. I, it, does, it doesn't <laughs> say. We'll look into it. Good to see you as always. You bet. Thanks for coming by. Uh, as we've shown you, stating the obvious is often a source for ridicule from some in America. 
uh, in the latest iteration of this, progressives say a new book stigmatizes single mothers. Melissa Kearney wrote The Two-Parent Privilege, How Americans Stopped Getting Married and Started Falling Behind, and stated the obvious fact. The growing up with a mom and a dad who are married produced better results than any alternative. It's especially a problem in the United States. 23% of U.S. children live with one parent and no other adults. That is three times more the rate around the rest of the world. Bradley Wilcox was raised by a single mom, is now director of the National Marriage Project, and joins us now. Bradley, I guess I would say it's so simple even a caveman could understand it because cavemen typically were married and had nuclear families. Well, yeah, yeah, I guess you could say that. And of course, up until the late 1960s, the vast majority of kids spent, you know, most of their lives uh, with both their parents, unless, of course, one of their parents died early. So kind of having, you know, an intact family has been, you know, with us for a very long time until around the late 1960s and 70s. All right. Help us understand this. And there's an important point here, right? Because there's times that women get out of abusive relationships and save their this their children from terrible situations. Um, And I think it's right. You don't want to attack single moms because most mothers are not single moms uh, necessarily by choice. But why is it that sort of the idea of celebrating traditional marriage to, you know, two two parents, a mom and a dad who love their kids who are working hard that produces good results? Why is that being attacked? Well, I think part of the story is, speaking right to what you were saying, that is that there are plenty of us who've had difficult situations in our own marriages, in our own families, and people understand and appreciate why sometimes it's the best thing not to get married or to, you know, to part ways. But I think the other big thing that's playing out here is that, unfortunately, marriage has become coded as a kind of a conservative issue, as a traditional issue. And people kind of assume that it's sort of a religious commitment or a Republican commitment, what we know from the research, though, is that kids are more likely to flourish in intact married families and that marriage is kind of a cross-national, cross-cultural, cross, you know, or trans-historical institution. It's not a, you know, right-wing thing. And so I think we have to appreciate how much the data tells us that kids are more likely to flourish when they've got mm-hmm. married parents. And this is, this is an institution that's kind of available to, to everyone. Yeah, unmarried adults, 25% of 40-year-olds have never been married um, 50% of all babies were born to unmarried mothers in 2019. So the number is just going to keep um, increasing. That's up from 5% in 1960. Oh, yeah, so we, we have seen kind of things level off since 2009. So we haven't seen the share of kids born outside of marriage increase since 2009. Hmm. And today, almost two-thirds of kids are being raised in stable married families. So we've kind of reached a plateau here. And I think the question is, where are we headed from here? Are we going to kind of let things get worse with our families or are we going to kind of take a turn for the better? Yeah. And look, uh, whether you have two parents or a single parent is the single biggest indicator whether a kid ends up in jail. So there, there's a whole slew of reasons. Fascinating conversation, Bradley. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Next, the New York Times says they, quote, should have taken more care when they told the world Israel bombed a hospital in Gaza. Well, will the New York Times learn? We'll let you know. We have figured out why the Biden administration both sides the anti-Semitism argument in America. The Israel-Hamas war is literally tearing apart the Democratic Party. Here, for example, is the White House spokeswoman responding to a very simple question about anti-Semitism in America. 
level of concern right now about the potential rise of anti-Semitism in light of everything that's going on in Israel? Muslim and those perceived uh, to be Muslim have endured a disproportionate uh, number of hate fueled attacks. Does the president view anti-Israel protests and sentiment on college campuses as anti-Semitism? So look, I'm not going to get into what's happening across the country and at different universities. I'm not going to get into the specifics. Hmm. As if the killing of a thousand Jews in Israel and marches on America's college campuses aren't evidence of anti-Semitism. In fact, back in July, the White House had an entire briefing about anti-Semitism. Now it doesn't exist. We've been telling you about the moral equivalency argument for two weeks now. President Biden's political team is loath to alienate his progressive base, like Congresswoman Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib. And I think a lot of people are not going to forget this. And it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not a threat. How is it that we are serving in a body? Serving in a body where there are members who condemn us for asking for peace, for ceasefire. The most simplest thing. Author of Killing the Witches, the Horror of Salem, Massachusetts, uh, is with us now here, Bill O'Reilly, anchor of No Spin News. Bill, I get the the Muslim vote being pro-Palestinian, pro-Hamas, whatever. But there's this whole group of progressives on the left that are not Muslim. They're, they're white Americans. They've always lived here who the White House can't alienate by saying we've got a problem with anti-Semitism. How did this happen in America? Well, the uh, a good litmus test is what happened in New York City on Saturday night. About 5,000 demonstrators in Brooklyn came out, blocked off some roads. Uh, police needed to contain them. Some of those people spit at the police, uh, baited them, called them all kinds of terrible names. And while I was analyzing the crowd, it was about 50 percent um, were involved with the uh, Hamas-Israel conflict. The other 50 percent were the Antifa crew, uh, the anarchists, the communists who come out for every demonstration and want to make the police look bad. OK, they attack the police. And whether it's George Floyd or whatever, they're out in the streets of New York trying to cause trouble, trying to diminish our society. So I'd be careful to, you know, the label anti-Semitism or everybody's in this bowl who's out there. Mm. It's different. Different strokes, as Sylvester uh, Sly Stone once said, for different folks. But the irrationality of the soundbite you played from the Congress people, that's pretty shocking. And the, yeah, the I, I guess what, call for a ceasefire. What cease I can't fire. figure out, yeah, I, I, what I can't figure out is why the White House, I mean, and you, may, you make a great point that there's sort of this, this anti-Antifa, communist, radical part to right. a lot of these protests and agitators. Um, obviously, our enemies enjoy stoking this division. Why is it so hard, though, for the White House to say that there's a difference between terrorism uh, and Islamophobia, between what happened in Israel and people being mad at Muslims? They just can't seem to do it. Well, who would do it, Leland? What human being in the White House is capable of doing that? Certainly not Miss uh, Jean-Pierre. She's not going to answer any question honestly ever. 
ever. Certainly not the president of the United States, who from day to day, maybe he knows um, what's happening generally, but not specifically, can't deal with those kinds of questions. So, look, the current leadership in America, in the Republican Party and in the Democratic Party, is the weakest leadership we have had in this country for decades. That's the truth. And when the most powerful nation on earth shows weakness, you're going to have people exploit that, like Iran, like Russia, like China, like the Antifa people, the anarchists within. Because we're weak. We have no leadership. We can't even pick a speaker of the House. And Biden himself isn't making any kind of bad decisions as far as supporting Israel and Ukraine, but nobody has any confidence that he'll right any wrong. Iran's spitting in his eye. What's Biden going to do about it? Nothing. And so I hate to be pessimistic, but we really are in a leadership crisis in this country. Yeah, I don't. I don't think you're being pessimistic, as we laid it out um, in our our opening in about the same way. About I saw that, and that was a good. Is. That was it. That was a good opening, but I'm not I'm not at the level of World War Three yet. See, I'm not there yet um, because these problems can be taken care of, but they have to be done in a surgical way. Look, I wrote the book Killing the Killers. All right. Two down from killing the witches. And I methodically went through what Bush, what Obama and what Trump did to defeat ISIS at one time the most menacing group on the planet. It can be done, but not with a weak leader who is afraid of Iran. Joe Biden is afraid of Iran. Difference between Mm -hmm. Biden and Trump is Trump was not afraid of them. Trump killed Soleimani. You remember that Iran threatened us with everything after Soleimani got blown up, right? What did they they do? Nothing. 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 Yep. Because Trump told them. Yep. Trump told them. All right. You do one thing to us. I'm wiping out your oil fields by air, which we could have done in two hours. And the mullahs didn't want to take the chance. No, no, you're you're 100 percent right. Uh, Bully bullies understand force and nothing else. Bill, we got to run. Thank you. We appreciate it. Uh, Coming up next, the mother who fought for more than a decade to hear her daughter's killer finally confesses. Plus, why Natalie Holloway's killer will never be charged in her death. See you in a minute. It took nearly two decades, justice delayed, but not denied. Beth Holloway has now finally heard the confession from the man she always knew killed her daughter. Last week, Johan van der Sloot confessed to killing Natalie Holloway on a beach in Aruba in 2005. In the next hour, Beth sits down with Cuomo for an exclusive interview. Chris is here now. Chris, this comes full circle for you. Oh, I've been covering this uh, from the beginning. Uh, I was one of the first or the first to interview uh, Joran van der Sloot uh, right after this. I've been in touch with uh, Natalie's family for so many years. I'm going to show an excerpt tonight uh, when I look like you. Back in 2007, talking to Beth Holloway in her dreams at that time 
of someday knowing the truth and how haunted she was then, 16 years ago. And I want her to talk to people tonight about where she was before this latest turn of events, where she was in terms of her own life and the angst mm. surrounding not knowing and why. So uh, this is full circle for that family. And I want her to tell people what it meant and why she believes she now knows the truth. Because I got to tell you, the story that he's telling is not easy to accept. Look, no matter what the story he's telling is just disgusting. And you think about what he has done, what he's done to other young women. You covered this from the very beginning. How is it that it's not just Natalie Holloway that he killed? How is it that this guy effectively, and thankfully he's going to be in jail in Peru for the next 20 plus years, but for a while he basically got away with it, even though I think you probably knew from the moment you interviewed him what the truth was. Uh, well, it's complicated. Uh, one, we weren't prosecuting him. Uh, yeah. You know, this was under Dutch laws, which are very different uh, than ours. And uh, they didn't have a body, which is you know always uh, a little bit of a, a problem. He was young. Um, but I think that is, if this had been, I'll ask Beth, actually, that's a good question. I'm going to ask Beth that tonight. Um, if it would have gone differently, if she were in America, I can guarantee you the answer uh, legally is yes, it would have been different. Um, but because he kept lying and changing his story and people around him wouldn't corroborate what he was saying. And that would be enough uh, to trigger probable cause here. So, um, you know, it was a bizarre circumstance. And I think a lot of it was people not wanting to believe that a kid who looked like so many people's kids and seemed so uh, relatable in some way could be a monster. But that's exactly what this kid was when I interviewed him back then. He was a monster. The way he talked about uh, the feelings he should have had, people dismissed it as youth. I did not. Um, this guy had a sociopathic, if not psychopathic, tendency and indifference mm. to everybody's interest but his own from jump. No matter what his age, yeah. no matter what his color, no matter what his background. This is, and he showed it his whole life. This kid is, uh, Beth Holloway is going to say this tonight. He's about four things. Food, violence, sex, and his own mm. fulfillment. Well, I, I'm glad you're doing this because uh, it's a story that we all covered, we all knew about, um, and it, it proves justice justice will be done if people stay on it as as Beth Holloway has for so many so many years, and you have as a, as a reporter. We'll see you at the top of the hour, Chris. Thank you. Coming up next, the victim. Uh, we literally have no idea who's coming across our southern border. Uh, new concerns, not from us, not from Congress, but from the Department of Homeland Security itself. The new warnings from Border Patrol about who to look out for, including those wearing Hamas and Hezbollah patches. Well, federal officials must have been watching our coverage of America's southern border over the past couple of weeks. They just put out this memo obtained by News Nation warning of individuals inspired by, reacting to, or from the Israel Hamas conflict attempting to travel to areas into the southwest border. Warns that the war between Israel and Hamas could mean foreign fighters like Hamas, Hezbollah, and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. See the patches there. 
are using the southern border to cross into the United States. Here now, Texas Land Commissioner Don Buckingham. It must be so surprising because I thought the southern border was secure. <laughs> you know, Leland, you're exactly right. You're pointing out the absolute hypocrisy on the Biden administration, whose policies have been enticing this flood of migrants across. We are seeing millions across already, dwarfing numbers from last year, thousands from countries that sponsor terrorism, over 200 from the terrorist most wanted list. The people coming across the border right now, a lot of them are a significant threat to our national security. All right. And look, now, now they're actually saying it, and we don't know whether this was put out with DHS you know, headquarters approval or not. Um, so section warning memo, Hamas patches, Palestinian Islamic Jihad patches, Hezbollah patches. Hard to imagine they'd come across with their patches, but who knows? CBP apprehensions in the last 14 days, 30 Iranians, 60 Syrians, 35 Pakistanis, 100 plus Russians, 285 Afghans, and 2,000 Chinese. Um, the Biden administration would tell you, well, because we're catching people on the terror watch list and more people on the watch list and more people from these countries, that means we're doing a good job protecting the border. Well, that's laughable because let's be honest, what happens is they weaponize the family units. They send the family units across. That takes law enforcement out of the area. Then the real bad guys come through. What we're catching is probably only a fraction. I've heard estimates, whether it's 20 times that, 50 times that, whatever it is, they are coming in in the dark spots and the in the holes that they create. It's why Operation Lone Star in Texas, we're spending billions of dollars as a state trying to defend our border and have been doing that for years, trying to fill the gaps that the federal government is letting be created at our border. Is there a way to actually, though, do it from a statewide perspective? I spent time down there. I've been with Texas Department of Public Safety, and I... I feel like, you know, it, it is a battle that you guys need to fight, but it's a losing battle. You're exactly right. Until the, until the federal policies change, we're not going to really be able to make a significant dent. However, we do have to do everything we possibly can to be securing our border at this time. Let me turn this around. Um, if all of these terrorists are coming through, why haven't we seen an attack from any of them? Well... That's the elephant in the middle of the room. I cannot imagine what just happened in Israel, where you saw coordinated attacks, mm. obviously plotted a long time. You've seen an influx of immigrants from the countries that sponsor terrorism. My concern is that we are just a heartbeat away from an attack on American soil. Well, we, we thought about it always after 9-11 that the true, the true fear, right, was 10 shopping malls with, with groups exactly what we saw uh, in Israel. It's nice to see you, ma'am. Thank you for coming up. My pleasure. Welcome back anytime. Thank you.